Welcome to Searchlight, a survey through Scripture with Pastor John Corson. It is our desire to bring you a systematic study of the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, book by book. One of the topics that we don't like to talk about is sin. We would rather not discuss our tendency towards sin, and we don't like to admit that we do sin. But if we are not honest about it, our sin will slowly pull us down. Today, as we begin a verse-by-verse study of Judges chapter 3, we will see the dangers of sin and how we can become engrossed and enslaved by it. But we will also learn how to overcome this problem. Let's now join Pastor John and see the problem of sin and how to deal with it. Judges chapter 3. Collapse in the Christian life is rarely the result of a blowout. It's almost always the result of a slow leak. People generally don't get blown away by the enemy suddenly. But they do collapse because there is a slow leakage of spirituality over a period of time. Collapse in the Christian life is rarely the result of a blowout. Almost always, it's the result of a slow leak. Compromises are made. Devotional life is ignored. And slowly but surely, the spiritual strength that we once enjoyed is dissipated until finally we find ourselves flat. We can't go on, or we're pulled away. But it didn't happen in a single day. As you folks know, nobody falls into sin. When I sin, when you sin, when we sin, it's a walking into sin one step at a time. You don't suddenly fall into sin, you walk in. All sorts of warnings are given to me that I choose to ignore or close my eyes to or stop up my ears foolishly. But the reality is people aren't generally blown away. They don't fall into sin. There's just this slow leak that takes place day after day, and we walk into sin step by step, you see until suddenly we find ourselves flat, fallen, wiped out. We see that story in Judges chapter 3. Now, these are the nations which the Lord left to prove or to test Israel by them, even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan. Nations that were left to provide a test for those that had not yet fought in the wars on behalf of Israel. 
only, verse 2, that the generations of the children of Israel might know to teach them war, at least such as before knew nothing thereof. Namely, the nations that were left behind as a way to test this new generation, five lords of the Philistines, or five leaders, five kings of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites that dwelt in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon unto the entering in of Hamath. Verse 4, And they were to prove Israel by them to know whether they would hearken to the commandments of the Lord which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. And the children of Israel, here we go, verse 5, dwelt among the Canaanites... Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons. And they served their gods. And the children, verse 7, of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and rather served Balaam. And the groves, the groves being those places where trees were planted, that there might be idolatry and immorality, all sorts of shady activities that took place in the groves that were dedicated to pagan deities. The Balaams, or Baal, and the Ashtaroths. Here we see something intriguing, haunting, frightening and sobering. We see this slow leak that I was referring to. You see, it says here, first of all, in verse 5, the children of Israel, they dwelt among these people. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, God said specifically, they were to destroy those people, annihilate them. God said specifically, you are not to allow any of these people that are listed here in verse 5 to remain in the territory. You are to obliterate, exterminate, annihilate every man and woman and boy and girl, lest they be snares unto you and thorns in your eyes, lest they be traps, lest they pull you down, wipe you out because you didn't do what you were supposed to do, you see. But here we see they dwelt among them. They said, hey, well, you know, we can control the situation. Last week we saw how they put some of these people under tribute. That is, well, we'll make a profit. We'll make a buck or two, or a shekel, I should say, by taxing these people. We can control them. Uh Uh-uh. They were to be done away with. But they dwelt with them. And then... After dwelling with them, verse 6 says, then they became linked to them through marriages, intermarriages. First, they're dwelling with them in a compromising way. Now they're linked to them as they gave their daughters uh, to their sons and their sons to their daughters. And now they're actually married to these people. And then we see them not only dwelling among them and linked to them, but becoming like them. Verse 6 ends by saying, they served their gods. Here's the order. First you dwell with sin, 
and then you're linked to sin, and then you become like that sin, you see. Sad, sad story. Wait a minute, you might say protestingly. It says here that those nations that, hey, they found themselves dwelling with and then linked to and then becoming like, wait a minute, Pastor John, it says, verse 1, that the Lord left those nations to test them. So it's not their fault that those people, the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, it's not their fault that they weren't exterminated. Not the Jews' fault, not the people of Israel's fault, because the Lord left them, true. The Lord did leave them. But that was not the Lord's original plan. That was not his intention. The Lord, again, in Deuteronomy 20, said, destroy them, annihilate them. Take them out completely. But when they didn't, the Lord said, okay, if you're not going to take them out, if you're not going to do what I say, then, then I'll use them to be a test for you. That you might see where you're at. That you might learn some lessons that will be important to you. Kind of like this. Mom and dad, you know how this works. Little Julie or little Tommy, your son or your daughter, brings home a puppy dog. Oh, mommy. Oh, daddy, isn't this puppy cute? And you look at the puppy, and yeah, the puppy seemingly, initially, seems to be cute. Can we keep him, mommy? Can we keep the puppy, dad? Please, 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 please. Listen, honey, a dog takes time. You got to feed him, and you got to walk him, and you got to clean up after him. They're expensive. You have to take care of them with shots and vaccinations and all sorts of things. So, no, you, you, you're not ready for that. You're only four. You're not ready to feed and tend and care for a dog like that. I know it's cute, but no, no, take the dog back where you got him. And you can tell that little Julie or Tommy or whoever, they're sad. Okay, they say. That night when you go to tuck him in and kiss him goodnight and say a prayer with him or her, you hear a funny noise from the closet. <laughs> it's squeaking, and you make your way, and you take a peek in, and sure enough, I thought I told you to take that puppy dog back. Oh, Mommy, oh, Daddy, I, I wanted to, I meant to, but oh, this dog, it just followed me right back home again. Here it is. Please, please, please. Okay, you can keep that dog. But this is going to be a test. If, if you're insisting, okay, this isn't the best in my opinion, son, but you can keep that puppy dog. But it's going to be a test to see if you are mature, responsible, and can handle this kind of thing. And that's what the Lord is doing in a sense. It was his intention to see those people destroyed and wiped out. But because... They didn't because they wouldn't. God says, okay, it's going to be a test for you. But, but, but the analogy sort of breaks down, quite frankly, because we're not talking puppy dogs here. We're talking ravening wolves. It would be as though your son or daughter, little Tommy or little Julie, brought home a baby wolf. Oh, look at this cute wolf. Can I please keep this wolf? I found him in the forest. 
Look how cute he is. Look how small he is. See, you say, honey, it might look cute and it might be small, but it's going to bite you. It's wild. You're going to get hurt real badly. Or, or it'd be like, more like that story that, well, it took place a number of years ago, true story in Texas, where, where a couple there had a baby, their first child, in an affluent neighborhood there outside of Houston, Texas. The baby was nine months old. Tragedy took place. You see, the dad had in his den a terrarium, and in the terrarium was a 12-foot python. And he kept the python there in the terrarium in his den. His wife said when she was pregnant and about to have the baby, could you please get rid of Monty? That was python's name, Monty. Can you please get rid of Monty? (laughs) But the guy said, no, hey, Monty's been with me for 10 years. He, he's, he's in the terrarium. I've got it under control. You won't have to worry. But it freaks me out, his wife said. What if he gets out? He won't get out. Well, nine months later, when the baby was nine months old, this man went down to his study one evening having a hard time sleeping and was going to just watch some TV when he noticed that the top of the terrarium had been knocked off and Monty wasn't in the terrarium. He felt a horrible feeling in his gut. He he quickly ran up the stairs to the nursery where his baby daughter was in her crib, only to find that in the crib with her was Monty, his python, and his baby daughter was halfway eaten. Strangled by the python and being eaten at that moment, the dad, with insane rage, ran downstairs, mad and crazy, grabbed an axe and brought it upstairs and began to hack away at that python. It was too late. The baby was dead. He went out and screamed down the street and was picked up by the police. And if you recall that story from a number of years ago, he went crazy. He went insane. See... Sad thing. The question is, why did he have a snake that size in his house with a baby anyway? Well, he thought he could control it, you see. He thought it wouldn't be a problem. And that's a whole lot like you and me when we say, well, you know, I have this thing under control. I've got this thing worked out. But in reality, Monty has a way of getting free. The wolf has a way of growing up. And these people here, you see, that they said, oh, we'll just dwell among them and give our daughters to them, found themselves becoming, sad to say, paganistic and heathens like them. And the Lord was angered, we read. His heart was broken. The anger of the Lord, verse 8, was hot against Israel. He was angry Because he knew what they were doing would bring destruction to the Jewish family, to the nation of Israel. It was a holy indignation. It was a righteous anger. And the father knew that his kids were headed for disaster. And his anger was rightly kindled against them. So he sold them, verse 8 says, into the hand of Cushan Rishathim the king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathim eight years. This guy's name, this king of Mesopotamia, means double darkness. He was a brutal guy. 
And the Lord was using this king of Mesopotamia to be an instrument of chastening, to punish his children, that they might come to their senses and realize you can't give your daughters and your sons to pagan neighbors. And you can't worship pagan deities. And you should do what I tell you to, God would say, in destroying those enemies. And so too, we're given over to double darkness when we don't destroy the enemies that are in our souls. That is, those things that we know have got to go. But we say, well, hey, I can control this. I can, I can deal with that. Until we find ourselves one day in double darkness. Depression sets in. We're down in the dumps. Confusion fills our thinking. We're in the dark about what we're supposed to do, about where we should go, about who we are. It's a double darkness, really. It's the reality of sin. And so this is what happened here in this picture, in our story. This king of Mesopotamia, whose name means double darkness, ruled over the nation for eight years. And when, verse 9, the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer. Notice this phrase that will appear time and again when they cried unto the Lord. We talked about this Sunday a bit. There needs to be intensity and passion in prayer, in my opinion. The Bible says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. No doubt they prayed during the eight years previously, Oh, this double darkness from Mesopotamia. He's brutal. This is awful. But they didn't reach the place of desperation and intensity until evidently, Eight years down the road. Now they cry. And this phrase will appear time and again where the kids cry to their father. The children of Israel cry to the Lord. And it says the Lord hears them. I think it would be interesting if, if the Lord responded to us to the same degree in intensity and passion that we talk to him. Lord, you know... I got this attitude problem. I kind of am not. not oh, let's see what time is it? Oh. Probably some. Lord, I know that my attitude isn't the, the best. Hey, I think it's time for. Lord, I'll talk to you a little bit later. I would love it if we could hear, if you would, the Lord's response. Oh, really? So you have a problem. <sighs> hmm. Well, I'll put that on my to-do list. I'll see when I can get to it, John. <sighs> oh, I've had a busy day, too. <sighs> well, maybe I'll see you later, John. I think that would be so interesting if we could see the Lord's response to us to the same degree that we request of him. I think there's far too much lethargy and sleepiness in prayer. I think there's far too much laziness and nonchalance in my own prayer. The effectual fervent prayer, effectual fervent prayer, effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man 
availeth much. And as I've taught, as we've talked, Elijah was the man being alluded to by James as an effectual, fervent prayer who was a man of like passions, just like you and me, but he prayed with passion. He put his head between his knees when he was praying for rain because there was a drought in the land. And he prayed over and over again seven times. Why his head between his knees? Because it's the position of birthing in that culture in those days. A woman would put her head between her knees in that way. And there's something being birthed by Elijah that day, laboring once and again and a third time and four, five, six, seven. He's pushing something through. He's working something out. Something is being birthed. And the Lord says, I like that. In a world that is plagued by mediocrity, apathy, and laziness, it's good to see a man like Elijah, God would say, I believe, who is willing to labor and to be a bigger person, to break out of sleepiness and say, it's dry. There needs to be rain. How about in your soul? How about in mine? How about in our community, our family, our country, our fellowship? Oh, would to the Lord he would give to us people that would pray with energy and would be stretched in this, laboring in intercession. So much more, I believe, could and would happen. Well, they finally cry to the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer whose name was Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord, verse 10, came upon him. And he judged or delivered Israel. Remember, these judges, they're not wearing judicial robes and sitting behind an oak bench with a gavel in their hand. The word judge in Old Testament times in this particular book means a deliverer, setting free. Well, this is the judge Othniel. He would be raised up as the people cried out, He would be God's man to set them free. And notice what happened. The spirit of the Lord came upon him. Notice that. The spirit of the Lord came upon him. That's the key. Has the spirit of the Lord come upon you? Come upon us? Come upon me? Oh, the spirit of God is in you. If you're a believer, and I trust that you all are, the spirit of the Lord resides in you, but has the spirit of God come upon you? Jesus breathed on his disciples, receive ye the Holy Spirit. And indeed, when he breathed on them after he had died and resurrected from the dead, the Spirit came within them. But then he said, now go and wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes upon you. And you shall receive power when the Holy Ghost comes upon you to be my witnesses. You see, it's so important that we don't simply have the Holy Spirit in us, that's good, but that we also ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit upon us. This is so important if we want to be effective witnesses for God, if we want to serve Him and be used by Him. We need the Holy Spirit not only in us, but upon us. Pastor John will talk more about this as we continue this teaching on our next program. Please join us then. 
This teaching is also available on the Searchlight website at johncorson.com. You will also find on the website Pastor John's books and other Bible study resources. Again, the address of the website is johncorson.com. We would like to remind you that on the Searchlight website, you can find Pastor John's teachings through the entire Bible. You can listen to the audio or watch the video of any of these teachings from the website at any time for no charge. The Searchlight website address is johncorson.com. Searchlight is an independent ministry that is not financially supported by any church or organization. We appreciate your prayers and support. May the Lord richly bless you.